0: SECTION 54 OF VOLUME 1B OF HISTORY OF ENGLAND FROM THE INVASION OF JULIUS CAESAR TO THE REVOLUTION OF 1688. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION, OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. RECORDING BY ROBERT HOFFMAN. HISTORY OF ENGLAND FROM THE INVASION OF JULIUS Caesar TO THE REVOLUTION OF 1688 BY DAVID HUME VOLUME 1B SECTION 54 CHAPTER 22 PART 4 THE PROSPECT OF A FRENCH WAR WAS ALWAYS A SURE MEANS OF MAKING THE PARLIAMENT OPEN THEIR PURSES, AS FAR AS THE HABITS OF THAT AGE WOULD PERMIT. THEY VOTED THE KING A TENTH OF RENTS, OR TWO SHILLINGS IN THE POUND, which must have been very inaccurately levied, since it produced only thirty-one thousand four hundred and sixty pounds, and they added to this supply a whole fifteenth and three quarters of another. But as the king deemed these sums still unequal to the undertaking, he attempted to levy money by way of benevolence, a kind of exaction which, except during the reigns of Henry the third and Richard the second, had not been much practiced in former times, and which, though the consent of the parties was pretended to be gained could not be deemed entirely voluntary the clauses annexed to the parliamentary grant show sufficiently the spirit of the nation in this respect the money levied by the fifteenth was not to be put into the king's hands but to be kept in religious houses and if the expedition to france should not take place it was immediately to be refunded to the people after these grants the parliament was dissolved which had sitten near two years and a half and had undergone several prorogations a practice not very usual at that time in england the king passed over to calais with an army of one thousand five hundred men at arms and fifteen thousand archers attended by all the chief nobility of england who prognosticating future successes from the past were eager to appear on this great theatre of honour but all their sanguine hopes were damped when they found, on entering the French territories, that neither did the constable open his gates to them, nor the Duke of Burgundy bring them the smallest assistance. That prince, transported by his ardent temper, had carried all his great armies to a great distance, and had employed them in wars on the frontiers of Germany, and against the Duke of Lorraine and though he came in person to Edward, and endeavoured to apologise for this breach of treaty, there was no prospect that they would be able this campaign to make a conjunction with the English. This circumstance gave great disgust to the king, and inclined him to hearken to those advances which Lewis continually made him for an accommodation. That monarch, more swayed by political views than by the point of honour, deemed no submissions too mean which might free him from enemies who had proved so formidable to his predecessors and who united to so many other enemies might still shake the well-established government of france it appears from commines that discipline was at this time very imperfect among the english and that their civil wars though long continued yet being always decided by hasty battles had still left them ignorant of the improvements which the military art was beginning to receive upon the continent. But, as Lewis was sensible that this warlike genius of the people would soon render them excellent soldiers, he was far from despising them for their present want of experience, and he employed all his art to detach them from the alliance of Burgundy. When Edward sent him a herald to claim the crown of France, and to carry him a defiance in case of refusal. So far from answering to this bravado in like haughty terms, he replied with great temper, and even made the herald a considerable present. He took afterwards an opportunity of sending a herald to the English camp, and having given him directions to apply to the Lord Stanley and Howard, who, he heard, were friends to peace, he desired the good offices of these noblemen in promoting an accommodation with their master. As Edward was now fallen into like dispositions, a truce was soon concluded on terms more advantageous than honorable to Louis. He stipulated to pay Edward immediately 75,000 crowns, on condition that he should withdraw his army from France, and promised to pay him 50,000 crowns a year during their joint lives. It was added that the Dauphin, when of age, should marry Edward's eldest daughter, In order to ratify this treaty, the two monarchs agreed to have a personal interview, and for that purpose suitable preparations were made at Pequini, near Amiens. A close rail was drawn across a bridge in that place, with no larger intervals than would allow the arm to pass, a precaution against a similar accident to that which befell the Duke of Burgundy in his conference with the Dauphin at Montereau. Edward and Louis came to the opposite sides, conferred privately together, and, having confirmed their friendship and interchanged many mutual civilities, they soon after parted. Louis was anxious not only to gain the king's friendship, but also that of the nation, and of all the considerable persons in the English court. He bestowed pensions, to the amount of sixteen thousand crowns a year, on several of the king's favourites on Lord Hastings two thousand crowns, on Laura Howard and others in proportion, and these great ministers were not ashamed thus to receive wages from a foreign prince. As the two armies, after the conclusion of the truce, remained some time in the neighbourhood of each other, the English were not only admitted freely into Amiens, where Lewis resided, but had also their charges defrayed, and had wine and victuals furnished them in every inn, without any payment being demanded. They flocked thither in such multitude that once above nine thousand of them were in the town, and they might have made themselves masters of the king's person, but Lewis, concluding from their jovial and dissolute manner of living that they had no bad intentions, was careful not to betray the least sign of fear or jealousy. And when Edward, informed of this disorder, desired him to shut the gates against them, he replied, that he would never agree to exclude the English from the place where he resided, but that Edward, if he pleased, might recall them, and place his own officers at the gates of Amiens to prevent their returning. Lewis's desire of confirming a mutual amity with England engaged him even to make imprudent advances, which it cost him afterwards some pains to evade. In the conference at Pequigny he had said to Edward that he wished to have a visit from him at Paris that he would there endeavour to amuse him with the ladies, and that, in case any offences were then committed, he would assign him the Cardinal of Bourbon for confessor, who, from fellow-feeling, would not be over and above severe in the penances which he would enjoin. This hint made deeper impression than Lewis intended. Lord Howard, who accompanied him back to Amiens, told him in confidence that, if he were so disposed it would not be impossible to persuade Edward to take a journey with him to Paris, where they might make merry together. Lewis pretended at first not to hear the offer, but on Howard's repeating it he expressed his concern that his wars with the Duke of Burgundy would not permit him to attend his royal guest, and to do him the honour she intended. Edward, said he privately to Camines, is a very handsome and a very amorous prince." some lady at paris may like him as well as he shall do her and may invite him to return in another manner it is better that the sea be between us this treaty did very little honour to either of these monarchs it discovered the imprudence of edward who had taken his measures so ill with his allies as to be obliged after such an expensive armament to return without making any acquisitions adequate to it it showed the want of dignity in Lewis, who, rather than run the hazard of a battle, agreed to subject his kingdom to a tribute, and thus acknowledge the superiority of a neighboring prince possessed of less power and territory than himself. But as Lewis made interest the sole test of honor, he thought that all the advantages of the treaty were on his side, and that he had overreached Edward by sending him out of France on such easy terms. For this reason, he was very solicitous to conceal his triumph, and he strictly enjoined his courtiers never to show the English the least sign of mockery or derision, but he did not himself very carefully observe so prudent a rule. He could not forbear one day, in the joy of his heart, throwing out some raillery on the easy simplicity of Edward and his counsel, when he perceived that he was overheard by a Gascon, who had settled in England he was immediately sensible of his indiscretion, sent a message to the gentleman, and offered him some advantages in his own country, as engaged him to remain in France. "'It is but just,' said he, "'that I pay the penalty of my talkativeness.'" The most honorable part of Lewis's treaty with Edward was the stipulation for the liberty of Queen Margaret, who, though after the death of her husband and son she could no longer be formidable to government— was still detained in custody by Edward. Lewis paid fifty thousand crowns for her ransom, and that princess, who had been so active on the stage of the world, and who had experienced such a variety of fortune, passed the remainder of her days in tranquillity and privacy. Till the year 1482, when she died, an admirable princess, but more illustrious by her undaunted spirit in adversity, than by her moderation and prosperity. She seems neither to have enjoyed the virtues nor been subject to the weaknesses of her sex, and was as much tainted with the ferocity as endowed with the courage of that barbarous age in which she lived. Though Edward had so little reason to be satisfied with the conduct of the Duke of Burgundy, he reserved to that prince a power of acceding to the treaty of Pequigny. But Charles, when the offer was made him, haughtily replied that he was able to support himself without the assistance of England, and that he would make no peace with Lewis till three months after Edward's return into his own country. This prince possessed all the ambition and courage of a conqueror, but being defective in policy and prudence, qualities no less essential, he was unfortunate in all his enterprises, and perished at last in battle against the Swiss a people whom he despised, and who, though brave and free, had hitherto been in a manner overlooked in the general system of Europe. This event, which happened in the year 1477, produced a great alteration in the views of all the princes, and was thus attended with consequences which were felt for many generations. Charles left only one daughter, Mary, by his first wife, and this princess being heir of his opulent and extensive dominions was courted by all the potentates of christendom who contended for the possession of so rich a prize Louis, the head of her family might by a proper application have obtained this match for the dauphin and have thereby united to the crown of france all the provinces of the low countries together with burgundy atroi and picardy which would at once have rendered his kingdom an overmate for all its neighbors. But a man wholly interested is as rare as one entirely endowed with the opposite quality. And Lewis, though impregnable to all the sentiments of generosity and friendship, was, on this occasion, carried from the road of true policy by the passions of animosity and revenge. He had imbibed so deep a hatred to the house of Burgundy, that he rather chose to subdue the princess by arms than unite her to his family by marriage he conquered the duchy of burgundy and that part of picardy which had been ceded to philip the good by the treaty of arras but he thereby forced the states of the netherlands to bestow their sovereign in marriage on maximilian of austria son of the emperor frederick from whom they looked for protection in their present distresses and by these means France lost the opportunity which she never could recall of making that important acquisition of power and territory during this interesting crisis edward was no less defective in policy and was no less actuated by private passions unworthy of a sovereign and a statesman jealousy of his brother clarence had caused him to neglect the advances which were made of marrying that prince now a widower, to the heiress of Burgundy, and he sent her proposals of espousing Anthony, Earl of Rivers, brother to his queen, who still retained an entire ascendant over him. But the match was rejected with disdain, and Edward, resenting this treatment of his brother-in-law, permitted France to proceed without interruption in her conquests over his defenceless ally. Any pretense sufficed him for abandoning himself entirely to indolence and pleasure, which were now become his ruling passions. The only object which divided his attention was the improving of the public revenue, which had been dilapidated by the necessities or negligence of his predecessors, and some of his expedients for that purpose, though unknown to us, were deemed during the time oppressive to the people." The detail of private wrongs naturally escapes the notice of history, but an act of tyranny of which Edward was guilty in his own family has been taken notice of by all writers, and has met with general and deserved censure. The Duke of Clarence, by all his services in deserting Warwick, had never been able to regain the king's friendship, which he had forfeited by his former confederacy with that nobleman he was still regarded at court as a man of a dangerous and a fickle character, and the imprudent openness and violence of his temper, though it rendered him much less dangerous, tended extremely to multiply his enemies, and to incense them against him. Among others, he had had the misfortune to give displeasure to the queen herself, as well as to his brother, the Duke of Gloucester, a prince of the deepest policy, of the most unrelenting ambition, and the least scrupulous in the means which he employed for the attainment of his ends. A combination between these potent adversaries being secretly formed against Clarence, it was determined to begin by attacking his friends, in hopes that, if he patiently endured this injury, his pusillanimity would dishonor him in the eyes of the public." If he made resistance, and expressed resentment, his passion would betray him into measures which might give them advantages against him. The king, hunting one day in the park of Thomas Burdett, of Arrow, in Warwickshire, had killed a white buck, which was a great favorite of the owner, and Burdett, vexed at the loss, broke into a passion, and wished the horns of the deer and the belly of the person who had advised the king to commit that insult upon him this natural expression of resentment, which would have been overlooked or forgotten had it fallen from any other person, was rendered criminal and capital in that gentleman, by the friendship in which he had the misfortune to live with the Duke of Clarence. He was tried for his life. The judges and jury were found servile enough to condemn him, and he was publicly beheaded at Tyburn for this pretended offence. About the same time, one John Stacey, an ecclesiastic, much connected with the Duke as well as with Burdett, was exposed to a like iniquitous and barbarous prosecution. This clergyman, being more learned in mathematics and astronomy than was usual in that age, lay under the imputation of necromancy with the ignorant vulgar, and the court laid hold of this popular rumor to effect his destruction. He was brought to his trial for that imaginary crime. Many of the greatest peers countenanced the prosecution by their presence. He was condemned, put to the torture, and executed. The Duke of Clarence was alarmed when he found these acts of tyranny exercised on all around him. He reflected on the fate of the good Duke of Gloucester, In the last reign, who, after seeing the most infamous pretences employed for the destruction of his nearest connections, at last fell himself a victim to the vengeance of his enemies. But Clarence, instead of securing his own life against the present danger by silence and reserve, was open and loud in justifying the innocence of his friends, and in exclaiming against the iniquity of their prosecutors. The king, highly offended with his freedom, or using that pretense against him, committed him to the tower, summoned to Parliament, and tried him for his life before the House of Peers, the Supreme Tribunal of the Nation. The Duke was accused of arraigning public justice by maintaining the innocence of men who had been condemned in courts of judicature, or of inveighing against the iniquity of the King who had given orders for their prosecution. Many rash expressions were imputed to him, and some, too, reflecting on Edward's legitimacy. But he was not accused of any overt act of treason, and even the truth of these speeches may be doubted of, since the liberty of judgment was taken from the court by the king's appearing personally as his brother's accuser, and pleading the cause against him. But a sentence of condemnation, even when this extraordinary circumstance had not place, was a necessary consequence, in those times, of any prosecution by the court or the prevailing party, and the Duke of Clarence was pronounced guilty by the peers. The House of Commons was no less slavish and unjust. They both petitioned for the execution of the Duke, and afterwards passed a bill of attainder against him. The measures of the Parliament, during that age, furnish us with examples of a strange contrast of freedom and servility— They scruple to grant, and sometimes refuse, to the king the smallest supplies, the most necessary for the support of the government, even the most necessary for the maintenance of wars, for which the nation, as well as the parliament itself, expressed great fondness. But they never scruple to concur in the most flagrant act of injustice or tyranny which falls on any individual, however distinguished by birth or merit these maxims, so ungenerous, so opposite to all principles of good government, so contrary to the practice of present parliaments, are very remarkable in all the transactions of the English history for more than a century after the period in which we are now engaged. The only favour which the king granted his brother after his condemnation was to leave him the choice of his death, and he was privately drowned in a butt of Malmsey in the tower, a whimsical choice which implies that he had an extraordinary passion for that liquor the duke left two children by the elder daughter of the earl of warwick a son created an earl by his grandfather's title and a daughter afterwards countess of salisbury both this prince and princess were also unfortunate in their end and died a violent death a fate which for many years attended almost all the descendants of the royal blood in england there prevails a report that a chief source of the violent prosecution of the duke of clarence whose name was george was a current prophecy that the king's son should be murdered by one the initial letter of whose name was g it is not impossible but in those ignorant times such a silly reason might have some influence but it is more probable that the whole story is the invention of a subsequent period and founded on the murder of these children by the Duke of Gloucester. Comines remarks, that at that time the English never were without some superstitious prophecy or other, by which they accounted for every event. All the glories of Edward's reign terminated with civil wars, where his laurels, too, were extremely sullied with blood, violence, and cruelty. His spirit seems afterwards to have been sunk in indolence and pleasure, or his measures were frustrated by imprudence and the want of foresight. There was no object on which he was more intent than to have all his daughters settled by splendid marriages, though most of these princesses were yet in their infancy, and though the completion of his views, it was obvious, must depend on numberless accidents, which were impossible to be foreseen or prevented. His eldest daughter, Elizabeth, was contracted to the Dauphin, his second, Sicily to the eldest son of James the Third, King of Scotland, his third, Anne, to Philip, only son of Maximilian and the Duchess of Burgundy, his fourth, Catherine, to John, son and heir to Ferdinand, King of Aragon, and Isabella, Queen of Castile. None of these projected marriages took place, and the King himself saw in his lifetime the rupture of the first, that with the Dauphin, for which he had always discovered a peculiar fondness louis who paid no regard to treaties or engagements found his advantage in contracting the dauphin to the princess margaret daughter of maximilian and the king notwithstanding his indolence prepared to revenge the indignity the french monarch eminent for prudence as well as perfidy endeavored to guard against the blow and by a proper distribution of presents in the court of Scotland, he incited James to make war upon England. This prince, who lived on bad terms with his own nobility, and whose force was very unequal to the enterprise, levied an army, but when he was ready to enter England, the barons, conspiring against his favourites, put them to death without trial, and the army presently disbanded. The Duke of Gloucester, attended by the Duke of Albany, James's brother, who had been banished his country, entered Scotland at the head of an army, took Berwick, and obliged the Scots to accept of a peace by which they resigned that fortress to Edward. This success emboldened the king to think more seriously of a French war, but while he was making preparations for that enterprise, he was seized with a distemper, of which he expired in the forty-second year of his age, and the twenty-third of his reign. A prince more splendid and showy than either prudent or virtuous, brave, though cruel, addicted to pleasure, though capable of activity in great emergencies, and less fitted to prevent ills by wise precautions than to remedy them, after they took place, by his vigour and enterprise. Besides five daughters, the king left two sons, Edward, Prince of Wales, his successor, Then in his thirteenth year, and Richard, Duke of York, in his ninth. End of section fifty four. Chapter twenty two. Part four. Recording by Robert Hoffman.